Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Rose City Politics. It is March 16th. Our regular panel tonight includes myself, John Lidke, Doug Sartori. Doug, how you doing? Doing very well, John. We both have the cityscape backgrounds. Yeah, nothing stood out for me in our topics this week, so uh, I didn't get cute with it. Just stuck <laughs> with the uh, traditional. We we ended the cuteness, I think, about like one year into COVID. It was just like, no, that's it's not fun. Um, you know, also- actually, I got to say that like I've noticed that the novelty backgrounds are now like actively annoying to people. Um, <laughs> so I stick with them, but that's just me. Uh, it, you know, others, I think, have drifted away from that. I just replace different office backgrounds now to try to keep people thinking I'm moving all over the place. But good to see you. We also have Don Merrifield Jr. here. Don, nice to see you coming from the void. Coming from the void. Lovely spring day. I would say, yeah, it's nice out. It's gorgeous out. I kept yeah. che- kept checking the weather today. And I guess because it was so foggy, they uh, all of the Government of Canada, Environment of Canada sensors were stuck frozen because the fog got built up so quickly and then it froze over and then it had to melt so i kept looking i kept going no it's not minus one that's impossible it's really nice out today nationwide snowstorm yeah exactly it didn't go away we're completely blanketed but good to see you nice hat too thanks well i didn't have the fancy haircuts like you guys got so actually before we start the show i want to say there's a couple things i want to say for those who don't know our own John Litke has been filling in for Dan McDonald on AM 800 all week and doing a fantastic job. Oh, thank you for that, Don. And it's taken a lot of effort for me not to call in and ruin your show somehow by saying stupid things. So you, sh- you should do it. I would love to hear your voice. <laughs> is that but, uh, why the is that why the news poll topic has been canceled? <laughs> but yeah, so on the uh, topic of Don saying stupid things, if anyone listened to our original version of the show last week. Uh, doing our ward watch of Ward 10. Uh, during the show, the situation with Ward 10 and Councillor Al Magni and the situation he had with the city back then came up. And John and I had a little back and forth on it. And in my attempt to be entertaining and thinking I'm humorous, I kind of made an off-the-cuff off stupid comment that was mean-spirited and insulting towards the councillor. Uh It was inappropriate. It shouldn't have said it. Mr. Magny's not in politics anymore. And obviously the situation he had was resolved years ago. So he doesn't need some dumbass on a, on a little podcast, taking pot shots at him and making stupid insulting comments. So obviously I owe the former counselor an apology. And uh, as a show, I guess we do on some level, but it was mostly me or all me. So yeah, it was a, inappropriate i shouldn't have said it i thought i was being funny or entertaining and it was uh, just insulting at the end of the day so yeah i wish all, all the best and uh i'll keep my stupid comments to myself in the future well i i hope you don't totally keep your stupid comments to yourself because i don't know what you would say on this show um Mr. i'll just insult you two guys from now on Mr. Magny's record is out there in public and uh, um, it speaks for itself. So I I think it's good for us to try to remain in the realm of facts as best we can going forward. 100% agree. And with that, if you're inclined to support this show, you should head over to patreon.com forward slash Rose City Politics. We also show up in BizX Magazine and online at bizxmagazine.com. And we're on all of your favorite social media and podcasting apps. Rose City Politics broadcast live on tape thanks to the kind support of Leuna 625 Building Better Communities. We've been gone for probably not the lead in you were hoping for john sorry about that if 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 you want to hear the really good stuff check out the patreon (laughs) um we have done 10 full weeks of ward watch coverage and uh you know for our show it was it we i feel like we were blessed to not have to dive into the current events of everything um week to week it was a very nice change of pace but we we missed out on a whole lot of stuff that happens and like some really big things that happen. So we've we've put together a list of, uh, you know, some mundane and then some big things to make up for it, because in typical Rose City politics fashion, we screwed around at the last minute and we humbled together a show. So here it is. We're going to dive into it or we're, we're talking about the stuff that we missed out on because of the ward watches and sincerely we apologize to all of you who got very upset that we wouldn't cover 
the other stuff going on. But up first, what we missed was mega hospital consultations. Windsor Regional Hospital has a new consultation that they've put out. Together we build. They're wanting help in planning the physical design of the new Windsor Essex Acute Care Hospital. Um, so they have a whole series of virtual town halls from emergency services, outpatient, pediatrics, family birthing center, surgical, cancer care, inpatient, education and learning, cardiac care, diagnostic imaging, and public spaces. So they've got a whole slew of these virtual town halls. They all take place on Zoom. I believe they'll be put onto YouTube. You don't need to register, but you get the notification, which is it's a nice way to have it set up. There are, you know, some things that you are rec or you uh, register for. You have to do the actual registration rather than just showing up at the time. Um, one thing, though, that's very interesting about this site is that if you want to participate in anything like meaningfully con consultative, to you know, give your opinion to actually have it registered in one form or another, you do need to register with the actual site itself which was a you know, really interesting barrier for me to say the least. Um, one thing that stood out as well from the press release that the Windsor Regional Hospital put out was from their project director, Paul Landry. And what he said was, I have never seen this level of public engagement at this early stage in hospital planning. The new hospital belongs to everyone and exciting to see the entire community invited to give input and help guide decisions our planning teams are making as they work on its design and layout. The hospital notes very clearly in the media release that Paul Landry has, quote, helped plan some of Canada's largest new hospitals in the past decade. I looked him up on LinkedIn and, you know, record speaks for itself. There isn't, there's no doubt about that. I, you know, I just, I find it funny. Of course, we all, I'll, I'll speak right now before we dive into the actual conversation and I'll go to you, Doug. But, you know, we've talked about the consultation process with uh, the mega hospital for years and how it's been a uh, lackluster to say the least at times, uh, offensive at other times, grassroots um, at other times. Um, and so it's funny here to see this kind of language right at the outset, but, you know, he's a new hire. Maybe he hasn't been fully briefed and that's, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious right there, of course, but the language does stand out that clearly trying to, you know, remedy, I guess, some of the issues that are in the past, but Doug, what's your take on the entire, you know, this new consultation is this, is this different or is it more of the same to you? So um, Mr. Landry's comments, first of all, I just want to get this out of the way. I, I thought they were interesting. Um, it is interesting that we're at an early stage. This is year like eight of this process, um, but uh, he's characterizing it as a very early stage in the planning process, which is quite interesting. Um, the, the, um, the other piece is that I think that language and, and maybe Mr. Landry, uh, as you said, he's a new hire, he hasn't been around. Um, that language in itself, um, I think, brings back some, some unfortunate uh, memories of the past uh, in terms of the hyperbole that's been used to describe this process. Look, this hospital um, consultation process, it does not have to be the biggest, it does not have to be the best, it does not have to be the most inclusive consultation process ever. Please stop with the hyperbole. Um, I think it's really unfortunate uh, that there are, there are not more efforts being made to have a truly inclusive planning process for this hospital. Um, we, you know, we talked about this in the pages of BizX last year, um, and I, I referenced a long conversation I had on the other podcast about, uh, about this very topic with um, the uh, now vice president of Enveronics, um, talking about the kind of work that they do to ensure that public consultations are inclusive. And, and I don't see any evidence that Windsor Regional Hospital is trying to do anything out of the ordinary, anything more than the bare minimum in order to ensure that this consultation reaches everyone in the community. And even worse, um, making missteps like requiring a registration and, the, and an, an email confirmation loop in order to even participate uh, in the process, in order to even ask a question or engage, um, really, really unfortunate. And, and, you know, I've, I've heard some defenses of that. I've heard some arguments, but um, at the end of the day, 
you know, there may be reasons why um, that is attractive uh, to Windsor Regional or to the folks who are doing the planning, but you have to look at this in the context of the whole history of this um, mega hospital project. Uh, to say that the, um, the, the relationship with the community is fraught, um, I think is fair. It's, it, it takes more than doing the minimum to, in order to heal those, those divisions. There was a lot of talk when camp's um, appeal was uh, was declined, when they, they finally lost their appeal and it appears there will be no further appeals of the um, LPAT decision. Um, when that happened, there was a lot of noise made about everyone getting on board, everyone getting behind this, um, this process and, and making sure that we make this the best hospital it can be by you know, bringing the critics into the conversation. There's no interest in that. Um, there is absolutely no interest in that. And, and even more so, I think that the natural defensiveness that now exists, um, and you see that I keep harping on this email registration, but I think it is a, a symptom of what is wrong here. There is a defensiveness and a reluctance to engage the community. Even before um, this piece, there was the, um, the, the one question survey, the open-ended one single question survey uh, that you know that that had very little guidance attached to it. That was that was the launch of this consultation process. Um, every step of the way, I've been disappointed with the consultation. And some people might say, "Well, Doug, you know, you're a critic, blah blah blah," um, and that's fair. And you can discount my comments as much as you want. Um, but I I think if um, if you go and look at what is the state of the art for effective and inclusive public consultation in Canada. Get out of Windsor, get out of this geography, get out of what passes for acceptable consultation here and look at how things have progressed elsewhere and what the state of the art is and then come back and tell me that this is an inclusive and engaging process. You know, even the city of Windsor has a more open process for their surveys these days, just using, you know, SurveyMonkey without a full registration whatsoever. And it, it works for the city itself. Yep. Uh, yep, I agree. And uh, I have issues with the way the city um, does public consultations. I think that um, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes they're excellent and sometimes they're a lot less than excellent. Um, but, um, but you're right. I mean, this falls below the standard that even has been set here in Windsor. And I think Windsor has a lot to learn from other communities in terms of how to do this sort of thing. We set the bar low and they managed to somehow crawl under it, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, 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 the registration part is, I don't know, it just reeks of politics because we all know that with elections coming up, you can just start seeing who your supporters are and who your supporters aren't. Uh, I guess more to the, the question I would have for both of you or anyone is, do you really want public consultation on what kind of services and design aspects should go into new? I don't know anything about delivering healthcare services. I assume neither of you have neither built a hospital or run a hospital in your lifetime. And it was Paul Landry, the guy's name, the project yeah. director. Yeah. It, like you said, he, you know, his LinkedIn or whatever says he's, you know, very well versed in these things. Why does he need opinions from us on what we think we should be in there? Okay. So I'm going to push back on that a bit, Don. Um, I think. And it's, uh, and it's, it's more of a question. I'm curious because yeah, I, I don't I, get it. I understand that perspective, and I think it's it's a fair question. Um, however, you know you can do an effective consultation with non-experts and interpret the, those those public inputs respectfully um, and help them to inform uh, expert decision making. This is something that I do in my in my daily work. Um, you know, uh, we have to build software and do implementation work um, with users who don't know the first thing about the work that we are going to have to do or how to properly architect a solution or any of those things. That's the part that we're supposed to bring to the table. But, but we can't do our work without um, accurately gauging where the pain points are, what the issues people are having are, and, um, and understanding what you know what the the temperature is and um if you look at all kinds of consultations um there are all kinds of things that the average member of the general public is not qualified to give input on 
um, in terms of you know expert opinion, uh, uh, land use planning would be one. Um, but the consultation process is still important because what people want matters. Um, so I think that I think that looking through this lens. And looking at this list, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to um, do, you know, person on the street interviews to find out um, how we should handle cancer care in Windsor and what the appropriate way to do cancer care is. Um, however, if you if you talk to the general population, you're going to find that a lot of people, um, many, many people have been unfortunately touched by um, the experience of having someone in their family, someone close to them who has received this type of care. And they'll have all kinds of opinions um, from the patient or the uh, caregiver of a patient or the, you know, the spouse of a patient from those perspectives about what their experience is. And that is incredibly valuable input if you're, um, if you're designing a system that's going to work for people. Do you think those kind of things would be location specific or wouldn't you be able to kind of garner that information from past projects and what you've consulted on and, you know, basically the same project in other areas? Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And, and, um, you know, I, again, just drawing a parallel to my own work, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, um, you kind of know when you're going into these things, what folks are going to want. Um, but it's always worthwhile to find out what the specific population that you're going to serve, what their needs and perceptions are. And, um, people may have the outside perspective on what is working and what is not working in the current system, which is something that is very hard uh, to determine from inside an organization. Um, if, if it was possible and easy for organizations to have visibility into the ways that they're falling short, they wouldn't fall short in the first place. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of value here and, and um, let's balance this perspective. I think it's good that um, these consultations are happening. I believe that they are basically a required part of this process. Um, and it's good that they're required. Uh, I hope that the hospital um, is taking these consultations seriously, um, perhaps more seriously than it might appear based on some of the things that, that I've mentioned already. Um, I hope that they're taking this seriously. You know, I think that the public input is important. I don't think it should be the be all end all. Um, the, the experts ultimately and, and uh, those who know how care should be delivered are the ones who should be making the final decisions. But um, I think it does matter. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's a requirement and I'm glad that it's being done, even if it's imperfect. So if the survey comes back that we want top of the line electroshock therapy services at Windsor, we should build a whole wing for that? Um, well, one, one thing I can say very clearly from my consulting experience is that you don't ask questions that you don't want the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Fair point. <laughs> so it's interesting. I, you know, very, very good points from both of you. And I wanted to go look back at the media release to just see what it is that we're actually talking about right here, because I'm going to go and throw a little bit of a bomb into the middle of what we were talking about. And what the survey is asking for, it says you share ideas for the layout and design of the 11 programs and services, right? So again, so it's like, it's not, there's no choice. I wanted to clarify there. It's not just, it's not choosing what services are gonna be involved in it. It's gonna be about specifically the layout and the design. And then when you go and look at some of the ideas that people share, it's a real hodgepodge that it's hard to see if it fits into what the categories are without necessarily registering, right? Um, which again, speaks to this whole issue as well. This should be as simple a process uh, as possible. Um, but again, I do find it kind of interesting. We're talking about a hospital that, you know, they still haven't broken ground. We're still a decade away. You know, there's people that are going to be filling out the survey that aren't going to be around when the hospital is in use. People that aren't going to be living in the community, maybe they've moved on in a, you know, more mortal way. Um, there will be people who aren't going to be affected by this hospital, but who will have input in it. So, I mean, it is, it's a weird situation to me because I'm, I'm initially on Don's side in saying, no, keep us the way. There's a reason that we don't have direct participatory democracy. I don't want everyone to come out and say what exactly it is that they want. And then we have to go along with it because, and then again, what would that say if a lot of people came out and wanted something that was reasonable, but not attainable, 
and then it has to be shot down, even if there's overwhelming response. So, I mean, it's, it's a tough situation. It's a grab bag here. I think the biggest thing um, that Windsor Regional Hospital has to overcome, and I don't think that they, nothing tells me that they recognize that they have to overcome it, um, is the perception that um, public input will be manipulated, um, that public input will be skewed, um, and it will be massaged to produce the outcomes that they want. Um, I think that a lot of very reasonable people drew those conclusions from the site selection process. And um, more than anything else, more than the actual substance of it, I think that Windsor Regional Hospital has failed to recognize um, that, that there is ground to, to, they have ground to get back uh, in terms of public trust um, on, on their ability to even consult fairly. Um, and that's the that's where the questions come in. You know, if we're talking about about small details, like um, you know, a, a, a frankly, in my opinion, poorly constructed survey uh, that kicked off the whole process, um, a uh, an email requirement for registration. If if it was any other organization in the city, even a big one, um, I don't think that we would devote a segment to that. Um, and I don't think that there are, you know, there would be an audience for that. I think people would fast forward through that segment if we did. Um, the reason that we're even having this conversation, the reason that it's even of interest um, is because of the nature of the consultation around site selection. Um, guys, your, your reputation for taking public input is not good and you have to do something to make it better and you're not doing it now. Or conversely, don't. You, there doesn't need to be a consultation about, you know, the design on the inside. There, like there does there. These well, are the, the mandatory, these, mandatory. Yeah, sorry. These are mandatory. Yeah, sorry, mandatory. <laughs> Come on. If they didn't have to, you know, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> it's been a long day. Don. That about sums it up. Unless they're going to make you write it on the back of your ballot and who you vote for. That's uh, I guess this is the only way to take public consultation, but you're right. I mean, in the, the past consultation, rightly or wrongly i don't know the right answer to that people feel it's been fraught with politics and insider deals and using the hospital for other purposes other than just we need it because we have horrible healthcare services here infrastructure anyway so yeah they uh yeah, doug's right we they have a long way to come to earn back the public trust i guess Doug, I mean, what are some of the quickest ways that you think they could do it just like a bullet print list of just what are some positive ways that you've seen in your industry well, I think I think when you are um, you're in a bad place when when people have lost confidence um, in your ability to um, to treat them fairly, uh, you're in a tough place. What what do I think that would look like? Um, I think at the outset of this process, uh, there should have been direct engagement with past critics. Um, I actually think that direct engagement with past critics, a bit of a a, a public. Um, meeting of the minds and and perhaps you know some effort at reaching out some something beyond the insincere and somewhat gloating uh social media like uh, demands for for people to join and heal um that's how it should start um this you know there's there's no reason to think that the hospital isn't going to be built on county road 42 at some point in the future um and i i think that uh that it goes it would go a long way to um, to building that trust back uh, to reach out to the folks who were on the opposite side, recognize that they had a point, um, thank them for engaging, and uh, and then move forward. And and uh, you know I think that again my opinion based on the egos involved, I just don't see that ever happening. Um, but that's what should happen. Yeah, that was kind of what I was going to ask. Do you think, given how bad it's been up to this point? and adversarial and personal that even if they were to do that, is that going to be a pay-per-view event on Saturday? We all pay 50 bucks to, to watch them scream at each other. Or do you think they could actually, you know, come together and talk about something substantive as opposed to just rehashing you suck, you suck. And you said this and et cetera. Well, I think that's my point. Uh, exactly. Don is that you can't get there without a little bit of pain. Um, you can't get there without um, without having to 
you know, hear from your critics and um, you're not going to be able to engage those people, the folks who were disengaged in the past, who were turned off um, by a process that they perceive to be a sham process. They, you're, you're not going to get them back. Um, and therefore, you're not going to build the confidence of the wider public unless you're willing to have that ugly conversation, unless you're willing to like actually give some standing to the criticisms. And um, that's not something that it seems like the two sides are willing to do. Um, but it seems that way, I think, in part because now Windsor Regional Hospital would very much like to pretend that all of that nasty stuff never happened. Um, and I, I think that that's not something that is going to be easily memory hold. Um, I think that you're going to have lingering opposition in this community uh, and lingering anger in this community. And like, look, new healthcare facilities are a good news story. New, a big new provincial investment in healthcare facilities is what we want. Um, and if we can't get past the bitterness of a, a fight that's going on a decade old because the two sides can't come together, I think you have to look at the institution. I think you have to look at the, the organization with hundreds and hundreds of employees and, um, and people with huge salaries and uh, tons of power in our community. You have to look at that organization, not the, not the, um, you know, the, the, the individual members of the community who were turned off. You have to look at the organization to make the first move and to try to find a way to bridge that gap. Um, they failed to do so, and I believe they're going to feel some pain and suffer because of it. Well, we'll leave that at that. We'll move on. We were supposed to do short little pieces on this one, but you know, sometimes we dive in and that's what the show's all about. The longest lightning up. round ever. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I thought, Don, when you said great lightning round, you meant like just the three of us going back and forth. And I was like, yeah, that is pretty good. And then I realized, oh, I like, meant oh, these wait, are supposed oh no, <laughs> these are supposed to be five minute conversations we just had for half an hour. Okay. Well, let's try to get to the ambassador bridge blockade and we'll just try to do it in like a tight 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. This will be an easy 30 <laughs> second spot. The city of Windsor estimates that the week-long Ambassador Bridge blockade cost the city more than $5.6 million, and the city is requesting that the feds reimburse the total amount for the added cost of policing, transit, emergency services, public works, and others. Mayor Dilkins said that the spending was, of course, to deal with what is a provincial and national economic emergency, and that he hopes to be made whole. Windsor Police Services, that they came to $5.1 million. That was 2.5 for overtime, 1.3 for Jersey barriers, 500,000 for accommodations, 500,000 for meals, 100,000 for London police assistance, and another 100,000 for other miscellaneous fees. The city of Windsor also is looking to get reimbursed for $250,000 in legal fees, as well as $110,000 for public works. And then Transit Windsor, $40,000, which would cover wages, overtime, lost revenue, fuel, etc. EMS wage and supplies at $40,000 and fire department services at $25,000. So I don't think it surprises anyone to hear that it, you know, there was a price tag that came with this. It went on for a pretty long time. Um, it was a pretty terrible situation for a lot of it. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know. 5.6 million to me, that actually, that actually sounds a little low. I'm surprised. Yeah, it's. We got uh, the cheap barriers. We didn't get the expensive <laughs> ones. Uh, I don't think those costs are excessive um, considering the scope of the challenge and, uh, and, and, Let's let's start by um, by acknowledging that the um, Windsor Police Service did a pretty darn good job um, in dealing with this. Uh, it it took longer than anybody would have liked to resolve, um, but there are I think there are pretty good reasons for that um, to have uh, concluded this um, this thing and peacefully resolved the blockade situation at the bridge. Um, nobody got hurt seriously. Uh, nobody got killed. So, so glad to, you know, glad that that's the scenario. Um, and, uh, and business resumed after, um, you know, an unfortunate, for sure, an unfortunate delay, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was protracted. And, and so I think when you look at, you look at what, um, how exemplary, I think that the response and the reaction was, um, and, and then you look at the price tag, 
Um, it's a pretty reasonable price tag, and I, I think it's fair dues to um, to ask senior government for support. Yeah, I think we're in a special situation. Well, maybe we're not, but in my opinion, we're in a special situation because our protest was based around closing an international border, which just economically cost you know the whole country, if you believe the numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so yeah, I guess some of the responsibility would probably you could see it falling on maybe the Fed should have done something quicker to resolve the situation and Windsor had to deal with it for however many days before they got any assistance from, from the province or the, uh, or the federal government as far as police resources go. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think 5.7 million was actually a lot less than I assumed it was going to be. Uh, I always assume when a lower level of government goes to a higher level of government, they pad their numbers like crazy just to try and get a few million bucks extra. Uh, it's the cynical Don still creeping out once in a while. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, regardless of whatever my commentary would be on the validity of the protest and all that stuff, you know, protest costs money. And, and well, there's a question and I don't know the answer. Like when we've had, you know, we had a G20 protest where they pretty much caged everybody up like animals downtown. Were we reimbursed for any kind of expenses on previous situations that were not that we really had any that were this extreme that I'm aware of, but yeah, for like, I, you know, big protest against anti-government, do we get any funding from? I think the kickbacks? difference there, Don, would be that those um, protests were anticipated. And uh, uh, I believe that the um, police cooperation um, at different levels and between different jurisdictions was something that was prepared ahead of time. I don't have any details on how those costs were distributed, but I got to think that it was um, a less serious impact on local police than this sort of surprise ad hoc thing. And that's just one, one point before we maybe go to a more general discussion of this. One point that I want to make is I think it's really important um, for the federal government in, in um, reflecting on this request to consider what lessons we are teaching um, future disruptors. Um, future people who want to disrupt the infrastructure of this country, if they had blocked the actual bridge, if they had, had gone onto the, the plaza um, and tried to block it there, uh, it would not have taken a week and it would not have been nonviolent. Um, you know, that's my opinion. I think it would have been a lot faster and a lot more forceful reaction. It was a tactical choice to blockade the bridge approach to blockade a, a municipal problem rather than to get onto federal territory. And uh, we have to ensure that those tactics don't bear fruit. And one of the ways that we do that is making sure that municipalities in the future, when they encounter this sort of thing, aren't reluctant to put appropriate, to make an appropriate response because they're not sure who's gonna pay the bill. That's a really good point. You know, and it's, it's good that like these SOPs have been developed now to a certain extent. I hope they are taken seriously and, uh, you know, not just put on a shelf like our uh, transit master plans, if you will, to gather dust on as time goes by. But I was incredibly impressed that, you know, when Windsor police did decide to act and enclose the plaza directly in front of the bridge and then hold the plaza up at Tecumseh Road and then just sort of let the people protest back and forth. The first day that people were there, it, it was, you know, there were easily two to three thousand people. It was well crowded, very dense. And there were multiple vehicles. Now, it was not a huge amount because you can only fit so many in the three lanes that you have on each side. But, you know, there were still probably, you know, 50, 60, 110 cars tops. But the next day when you came down, there were 10 cars. And what had been established by that point, all the barriers were put up. No other vehicles could make it in. And it was just a constant exit of vehicles. So it, like that tactical response was great. I think, you know, it took a little long to develop because, you know, quite frankly, I think our police are sitting there and trying with, you know, trying to figure out what's the role of the OPP in this and what's the role of the RCMP in this. And it's clear that there wasn't coordination prior to this event between those events, between those organizations. And how do you deal with an international border crossing? The jurisdiction was not known. I think for most of us, it should seem obvious that the feds take point and they can, you know, direct, or maybe that's not the way it should go, but it's federal infrastructure at the end of the day. And you know, it just there was that delay, and how do you deal with this? But they did a good job, and for the price tag, I'd say it's worth it. Yeah, and also you got to figure that at 150 rubles on the dollar, it's going to be harder to fund these organizers in the future. <laughs> so uh, probably be a little bit easier to counter. 
It's really down about 80%. Point. So I guess that's right. So, well, John, if anyone doesn't know, John was down there kind of doing the on the scene reporting for AM 800 and for himself. And, you know, we had our little chats on Twitter in the middle of the night. Uh, so you were there most, the vast majority of the time. Do you, and I'm probably putting you on the spot when I ask you this question, but do you think this could have been broken up or resolved quicker than it actually was by the police department, whether it's just the local police department that was there at the beginning of this? Oh yeah. If, if they wanted to, I mean, if they wanted to walk in, you know, jackbooted with, you know, batons and started swinging them, they could have easily had this taken care of very quickly, but there were a lot of people that were down there that were live streaming media was down there. You don't want that type of imagery. And then again, you know, I think like, what would the response have been if that was the scene and they took down, you know, 50, 60 people and it got really bloody, but then the next day it actually, it focuses the attention to get more people down to Windsor. And that was the biggest problem when I was there was you talk to people and you ask them like, Hey, okay. So what's your thoughts about the bridge being broken living here in Windsor? I mean, it, this affects us all. And like 90% of them were not from Windsor in any way, shape or form. They'd get very hostile when you'd ask them where they're from, where are you from in the city? What neighborhood? And what does it matter to you? Why do you care? And it's just like, okay, I see what's going on here. You've just come to our city to destroy it. it, you know, it was- and, and we didn't get like one police officer on horses like they had in Ottawa, which would have been a lot more entertaining. Well, uh, yeah. Bringing up, bringing up Ottawa, um, what a uh, what a contrast um, in terms of how it was handled in Windsor versus how it was handled in Ottawa. I recognize um, the the scope of the the protest was different. Um, it was geographically less spread out, and um, there were fewer um, saboteurs and protesters here than there were in Ottawa. Um, I don't know, but perhaps there was also. Um, less of an element of, of um, people who might be prone to violence or have a history of violence than there, there sort of seemed to be in Ottawa. Um, but all of that being said, um, the Ottawa situation resulted in um, the police board being discredited, the police chief's resignation, um, a, a city disrupted for weeks on end, and we saw none of that here. Um, we, Didn't three we, other police board members also resign after the board was reconstituted? I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that detail. Um, but the situation in Ottawa was terrible. The policing was um, obviously a problem. They did not have a grasp on the situation. Uh, you know, it was um, it was it took it took a declaration of emergency to um, at the federal level to start to resolve these challenges. Uh, and that here was a different story. And I, I think that um, I think you have to attribute at least some of that to um, the quality of our police force and credit where it's due. Um, they, you know, it took them a while, but they got the job done here. Um, they got the job done in a way that I think is is hard to criticize, except for, as I mentioned, um, you know, the length of time that the bridge was blocked. It did have a major economic impact on our, our region um, and on the country, frankly. Um, but but that aside, um, you got to look at the, the policing horror show in Ottawa and and um, be thankful that we have the leadership that we do. Do you guys know uh when push came to shove, literally, I guess, did we, did Windsor actually impound any vehicles or hand out tickets or like they were, you know, they were saying they were going to be like $5,000 fines and things like that during this uh, protest from the government. Did we, did we actually give out any of those fines locally? Turn your mic on, John. It works better that way. The vehicles were cleared for sure. I don't, and they were, they were ticketed and towed. So yes. Are they? Okay. Well, we get the money from that. Can, <laughs> yeah. can we sell the big trucks? They're worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, I, I don't think we seized any of them. I think we just, we just towed well, there, them to the there's where we went. That's where we went wrong, John. Right there. We right. had the opportunity. Don wants booty-based restitution. <laughs> <laughs> it's the pirate theory. When you know we just act like pirates, we get to claim your goods, and it's now ours. Uh, uh, I, I feel like I feel like um, making a setting a precedent that that um, that forfeiture of goods is how we're going to fund our police department. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong with that, Don? <laughs> 
It's worked fantastic for the uh, drug operations down in the United States. That's they got tanks and everything now. It's fancy boats and cars. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, it's funny, but it's also awful. Um, I think we've probably done this topic. Otherwise, we can go far too long on it. So let's uh, let's keep pushing through. Um, the there is an Amherstburg City Councilor. Patricia Simone has put forward a motion to keep the town's name, but change its meaning to distance itself from its, you know, namesake, Lord Jeffrey Amherst, who has, um, you know, a not so great history. And a statement that she presented to council, she acknowledged the controversies of General Amherst due to his role in protecting Canada, quote, but also seeking to eliminate the indigenous during Pontiac's war via biological warfare, primarily through gifted blankets infected with weaponized smallpox. That was me condensing her statement, but those were the words that she used. The councillor proposes council keep Amherstburg as the town name, but change the root Amherst from the man's name to the etymological root, which refers to a settlement amongst the woods. Mayor Aldo Di Carlo says, though, with Amherstburg being over 200 years old, there is some attachment to the name by the residents. Doug, you are our Anderton Malden past historian of the area. So I'm going to give you the opportunity first to come in. Thanks. Um, I think this is uh, really courageous by uh, Pat Simone to do this in an election year. Um, it's hard to see how she could possibly be making any kind of political calculation that this is going to help her get reelected. Um, and, and so, you, you know, I, my perspective is that this is based on um, Pat Simone's personal moral compass and personal values. And so right off the hop, I want to say I, I sincerely think that that's, it's quite admirable and gutsy to do this. Um, having said that, um, acknowledging Acknowledging the nature of Jeffrey Amherst, and um, you know, and and stating that you are dissociating your town's name from the man is the bare minimum. Um, it may be the maximum that would possibly be politically palatable, given um, given the. Uh, attachment that Mayor DiCarlo mentioned. And, and look, people in Amherstburg love their town. And um, my perception uh, from a lot of people in town is that, um, you know, this is seen as an attack on the town. This is seen as undermining the town and an attack on the town. So it's hard to see how um, a proposal to change the name of the town would pass at council. Um, so I think that it's an appropriate calculation on Councillor Simone's part, although I do not think it goes nearly far enough. Um, let's, let's, you know, let's be real here. This is about putting, um, putting the, uh, you know, honoring a person who advocated for the genocide of Indigenous people on one side of the scale and on the other side of the scale you're putting people not liking change. And we're, we're kind of weighing that in the balance and we're saying, well, you know what? It's really, this is really sucky, but, um, and it's shameful and it's a terrible history, but, you know, people now might feel bad and we don't want that. People in the town might feel bad about the name change. So we, you know, we can't do it. Um, honestly, I, you know, in, in my mind, I think that the town should change its name. I think it's short-sighted um, to not see how uh, this, this, um, the, the current and increasing recognition of the nature of who Jeffrey Amherst was and what he stood for, this is not going away, folks. Um, and if anyone in Amherstburg is listening, this is not ever going to go away. This is something that is only going to get bigger. Um, it is going to end up having an impact on how your town is perceived. Um, if you stick if you if you put your 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 feet down and you say we are not going to change this name and no one from outside or no one is going to tell us that we can't be proud of the history of our town and blah 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 all that horseshit if you stand by that you are going to find that people are going to increasingly have a discomfort with the town itself because of the name because you can say you can say that it doesn't mean what it used to mean Everyone knows what that town was named for. Everyone knows who that town was named for. And 
over time, the impact, the negative impact on a community that I think is a wonderful community full of great people, the impact on that community is, is going to be increasingly negative. Who wants to live in Genocide Town? Who wants to go and spend their tourist dollars in Genocide Town? Increasingly, that is the question that people are going to be asking themselves. And if you think that it is going to go away, and this is not going to be an issue forever starting now, you're kidding yourself. Change the name. Change the name of the town. Um, the, the, before it was Amherstburg, that community was named Malden. And um, Malden is also one of the founding communities in the amalgamation of 1999. It is not rewriting history. It is not doing anything. Changing the name of the town to Malden would be a recognition of the, the history of the community just as much as retaining the name of Amherstburg is um, without the shameful association with a person who, in writing, advocated for genocide against Indigenous people. So um, that's, that's kind of my opinion, John. Sorry, I went off on a little bit of a rant there, guys. I'm fired up about this. This is something that bothers me. That's all right. And for the record, Genocide Town is not a valuable option for to name any town. It's the worst place in the world. Uh, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate, dumb guy in the street, because to be honest, I am the dumb guy in the street. Do you think, look, I have family that live in Amherstburg, and so I spend probably more time than the average ones right in Amherstburg. Uh, my brother lives out there as kids. My dad lives out there. So again, dumb guy in the street, it didn't even register. Like I honestly knew very little, honestly, nothing about the history of Lord Amherst. It didn't even dawn on me. It was named after somebody. Uh, you know, I grew up in LaSalle and I'll say it out loud right now is LaSalle named after a person or is that just, I don't know. Like, I really don't know. Uh, so do you think, I guess if you live there, it's different, but do you think, do you think most people, regardless, you know, let's take Amherst, live somewhere, are really aware of the history, especially now. I mean, the town's 200 years old. So do you, do you feel that most people who live there or live around the community actually understand the significance, A, of the name and the historical aspect of the person that's named at? Like, is Malden a person? I, I honestly don't know. So um, I, think Fort Malden, I, so think, I guess it would make sense to name it Malden. I think you raise a really fair point on um, how many people know that Prince Road is named after a person who ordered the summary execution of um, prisoners of war in Windsor. Not too many people, <laughs> but that's, you know, that is the, the history of that person. And I think you're right, um, especially uh, uh, before this controversy erupted. Um, I think that most people would have no idea um, what, you know, this person or that person did, um, which I think is a really important point that supports the argument that, um, you know, changing the name is not erasing history because people didn't remember the history anyway. It was not something that was keeping history alive in any way. Um, however, I went to high school in Amherstburg in the 1980s, and um, we were told, we were told the history of Jeffrey Amherst in history class um, in school. So uh, oh, well, certainly, certainly, if you are from Amherstburg, you probably had some inkling of the history. And, and uh, um, but that was the point that I was trying to make. Um, this is now an issue, you know, and it's not only Amherstburg. There are other, um, there are other places and institutions that are associated with Amherst um, that are changing their names. Um, there is a growing recognition of um, the, the, nature of the man and the things that he did um, and the things that he advocated for. Um, and I don't think that's going away. And that's why I'm saying that uh, I think that folks who folks who live in Amherstburg may have a false sense of how important this issue is because they think it's something that that is in the past that is forgotten and it doesn't matter. Um, I don't think that that's a reflection of attitudes today. And the problem is the problem with all of that is that now um, Pat Simone has very clearly stated in, you know, to the media exactly what the history is and exactly why it is a shameful history. Exactly why. No one in town can now say we didn't know. Everybody in town, everybody knows exactly what this person was all about. And now it's unfortunate. It's crappy. But now they have to think 
and they have to choose of whether it is more important to stay comfortable with with you know things as they are and not change anything or to stop honoring a person who is not deserving of honors that's the choice that amosburg faces now and there are no excuses and there is no saying we didn't know they know yeah it's a valid point i mean you know the point i was trying to make now you can't plead ignorance and say well i didn't know that he was this horrible human being uh and as two guys who went to Prince Andrew public school, is it probably advisable they start thinking about changing their name at this point? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a good It's a valid to... point. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, do you want yeah. your kids going to Prince Andrew public school? Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Not, not a good look. It's oh true. We God. both went to that school. <laughs> we did. We did. And you're right. <laughs> we had the same kindergarten teacher, Miss Mahanka, if you're still out there, you were my favorite. It's not a good look. <laughs> no. Oh, that's funny. You know, going back to what you just said, though, about people knowing what the name is about. Um, here's two comments that are at the end of the article. One from Christian Morrison. I can't imagine a town council taking this forward. If they do, really, we'll all be the laughing stocks. And then this is where it gets really good. Meanwhile, John, not this John, but John, who did not want to provide his last name to CTV News, which to me i think is just it's always great. a good sign profiles like, encourage yeah so we haven't really delved into the meaning of the name amisburg okay this is literally an interview about the meaning you are <laughs> fully aware you have been briefed you're answering the question he goes on but i think the name of the town is really something that's a landmark it's a place that all of us are familiar with i think you'd have a big problem if you changed the name so just leave history out and enjoy our community. Like just, so, I mean, there's your willful blinders, just put straight yeah. on. But Do also people realize that, that they don't actually have to speak into the microphone? No, no, that's, that's not an option anymore. As oh, I, this... I prove on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All three of us are sitting in front of microphones. Yeah. Don, as you just mentioned, I just got a gig where I have five more days of microphones. Yeah, yeah but I you know what? And I can't stop <laughs> saying stupid stuff. Well, but this is why you need the practice, right? I mean, so like, you know, think of the things that we'd be saying if we were all back at day one. Yeah, I also, yeah. I also Those... did not realize that not giving my last name was an option. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's had I known this to me. Would have been a lot easier. <laughs> well, Don, let's keep you in focus here. I think we'll move on from this. Well, one. No, I, I, I oh, Doug, oh, sorry. Doug has answered my question. Is Malden a person? Is LaSalle um, a person? I... Mal LaSalle is a person. Mal oh, is don't, don't ask me what LaSalle did. Malden okay. is a place. Malden is All named right. after it, the common pattern of naming uh, uh, Ontario places after um, Britain, like British English places. Towns, yeah, yeah okay. exactly. All right, go ahead, John. The town was named for explorer René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de la Salle. So, oh, so it's just named after. Well, we could have called the it man Sieur of de la Salle. That would have been yes. a lot better. So, the, so La Salle is named after another place, but that is supposed to be named after a man. Wow, this is getting really. <laughs> this is becoming one of those movies where if I smoke too big a joint, I cannot yeah. keep up. So, so what did that guy do? What's what's his claim to fame? Oh, come on. Who did he murder in the past? He was an explorer. This is We're a, all explorers, John. What are we what are we trying to do? Nothing. <laughs> to I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm you, just trying you, to prove roll on the with, ignorance of roll the on average with, person. Yeah. Roll on with the show, John. We'll research LaSalle separately. I'll I'll take yeah, care yeah, of that right now. Show. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll Google LaSalle La crimes. <laughs> okay, exactly. Just go straight to the controversies and then uh, pop back in. Yeah. Um Let's switch over, though. We're doing our developer Dawn segment here. We want to be uh -oh. talking about housing cost increases, the new Walkerville multi-res development. And then, Doug, you've got a topic you wanted us to dive into specifically, Housing System and Innovation Summit. So, Dawn, without further ado, what's up with the prices rising? No, I'm not well, apparently they're going up. So that's irritating some people. Uh, you know, we've talked about this a little bit on the show and when we were doing our ward segments on each ward at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of highbrow conversations you can have about the situation we're in, why it's happening. And there's bylaw discussions and mortgage discussions and all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to supply and demand. Uh, and this isn't a Windsor thing. This is just across the board. We are not building enough housing, especially for the number of people who are coming to Canada 
you know, if that number outweighs the number of units you're building every year, uh, it's a math problem. You're eventually going to run out of, run out of houses. And again, it's supply and demand. You have more buyers for every house than sellers. Uh, we've had historically low interest rates, but that has slowly started to change because Bank of Canada did raise their mortgage, uh, their base rate a quarter point, which is not going to have any effect whatsoever. And uh, they just did it in the States today. They raised their their rates a quarter point. And some people don't know this, but a lot of mortgage rates are based more on uh, long-term bond rates than actually the Bank of Canada rate. It's all kind of connected, but... Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been a big issue in this city, uh, you know, with more people during COVID working from home, they realized they didn't have to live in Toronto and try and spend a million and a half to get a starter home. So it was, you know, it was at that time, let's go back two or three years. Uh, I know this sounds crazy, but the prices were probably half of what they are right now. Not probably they were, I mean, we've been going up 30% a year basically. Uh, so yeah, your million dollar house was a half million dollar house only two, three years ago. Uh, so obviously on a community like ours, where we got, uh, spoiled on some way with excessively cheap housing costs for ever. Uh, and especially if you go back to when I was younger, you know, we actually had higher incomes than average than most people in Canada because of our manufacturing base and cheap housing. So we, you know, we had it we didn't have to deal with something that a lot of major cities had to for decades. I moved to Toronto in the 1990s and that's when everybody was losing their mind because houses were costing $250,000, which was unheard of. But at that time you could have bought a house here for 50 grand, 60 grand. So yeah, I think a lot of it's perspective that doesn't make anyone feel better who can't afford, you know, mortgage rates or getting into a property at this point. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, conversations going on. They're trying to come up with solutions, but the reality is it's probably takes too long to get new developments passed, uh, even on an infill basis. If you're just doing, you know, turning one unit into four or two. Uh, and that's, that's not specific to Windsor. That's across the board. There's been a million regulations that could put in place before you can, you know, do a development and that just slows it down. So it's, uh, so that's the case there. And as far as I, did you bring up the Walkerville place? Um, I, how about you let Doug, if he wants to respond. Oh to yeah, the go ahead, Doug. Thing. No, let all your, no, let was, all your real estate agent hate out now because that's very popular. Right? I was reading up on LaSalle. I'm not going to lie. So I was, <laughs> I was only kind of, kind of half an ear there. So you carry on. So, well, who got, did he kill somebody or did he destroy he, a whole uh, culture of people? So, so reading the article, um, LaSalle deception and murder um <laughs> uh it's it started off bad i was concerned based on the um on the headline but uh it sounds like he got murdered oh um, all right yeah. well, that's acceptable thank so, god uh, at least according yeah. to the piece that i'm reading um lasalle the explorer was kind of an incompetent kind of a jerk and he ended up getting murdered um oh, but sounds, sounds like the perfect guy to name a town after we don't cancel people for that so uh yeah. you know long long may lasalle reign Keep going. LaSalle, not canceled. <laughs> not canceled. There you go. So yeah, concerning the, the Walkerville development, uh, for anybody who, you know, most people don't pay attention to this stuff, I'm sure, except Walkerville residents and real estate people. But that's where the old church was. Uh, there was, you know, a big brouhaha about wanting to tear that down. People wanted it to stay the same because people don't like change. So fair enough. Uh, they eventually did get permission to tear it down. I forget who the developer was who owned that land i don't want to say the wrong name so i won't say anything uh originally it was supposed to be just i believe three or four giant building lots expecting to build you know your typical walkerville old victorian georgian style you know giant houses there and i think and that's what was proposed when they got permission to tear down the church so i think that's what irritates people a little bit in that area is the justification to tear down the church that some people didn't want torn down was because X, Y, and Z was going to happen. And now we're switching that over to ABC. So I understand the, the, the local people being Walkerville people being upset about it. What I guess I, well, and fine. They, I, I disagree with them blatantly. Uh, the reality is you've taken what was basically an empty dilapidated church you've torn it down and now you're probably going to get 30 units on four lots, which would have been 
four units. There's been giant houses as opposed to condominiums. Uh, looking at the artist rendering and the, you know, it seems, you know, they put some effort into trying to make it kind of conform to a little bit of the community standards over there. It's always going to have a newer look than, you know, houses built in the late 1800s. So that's, you know, not feasible to make them all look like castles. Uh, you know, there's always, you know, parking, but for the love of God, let's just not talk about parking anymore. That's an issue. People worry about traffic. It's the same. Look, we have the same discussions every time, uh, a multi-res unit goes somewhere that it's usually historically wouldn't go. People lose their minds because they can't see the sunset anymore, whatever the case is and traffic and overflowing sewers and everything, you know, there's the same game plan when you're against something. So apparently it's going to get built. I think it's a good project. I think it's good for the community. It's good for the city. Cause like I say, you're, you took out zero units and now you're creating however many, it's probably gonna be four floors with no, seven or eight units on the floor. So yeah, you're creating 30, 40 units. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really see the downside. The, and if people are concerned, this isn't going to be, you know, the riffraff moving into low income housing. These, I guarantee you are going to be six, $700,000 units. So it's not, you're not ruining the economic situation in that community because it is a higher, you know, a higher income area. So Unless you end up with cannabis retail, in which case it'll attract all kinds of riffraff. Well, that's true. Yeah, here, if you go down the streets, it's just full of undesirables and riffraff. We couldn't talk about housing without mentioning the Windsor Law Center for Cities Housing Summit that is actually going on right now. It's a two-day summit, uh, but there are sessions tomorrow. So if you're listening to this show on Thursday, there is still time for you to register. Um, check out the Windsor Law um, Center for Cities website. That is windsorlawcities.ca. And when you're there, you can take a look and register for the event. Lots of interesting speakers talking about housing policy, such a critical issue right now and um, definitely worth checking out. Um, Don, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about this in your opinion. Um, one of the things that uh, from afar, um, listening to the conversation around housing in Toronto, um, one of the things that, that seems to uh, constantly crop up is the, um, the power of residents uh, to mm-hmm. block development, um, the, uh, you know, how many um, single family dwellings are, there still are in the city of Toronto and in most big cities, those would be long gone. Um, and when I look around Windsor, my perspective is that we don't seem to have those kind of barriers to development that, um, you know, when um, we don't have, we, we sure we have NIMBYs um, and some developments go forward, some don't, but it doesn't seem to me that um, if, if there's continuing pressure on price, um, it seems to me that Windsor will find a way to solve this problem um, and that that resident opposition is not going to be as powerful a force. But that's just my perception. And I want to know what you think, and if you think that's accurate. Well, it is. I think for, you know, comparing, look, I lived in Toronto all through the 90s and I owned a house in Toronto and I should have kept it because I could have been retired by now if I still had it. Uh, paid $135,000 for a house in Toronto. So right in my backyard, literally at the end of my backyard was a 16 story apartment building. That was just normal. Uh, but the problem they have, and you're right, the, the big issue in the GTA area, or specifically the Toronto area, is they should be building high-rise condos everywhere because they're more affordable. You can squeeze more people into a small space. You know, there's X number of millions of people in Toronto and the vast majority of them all work downtown. So they're all trying to get to a centralized location. We don't have that same situation here. I think the problem we have here is more people who don't want either a low rise or a multi-res building close to their house. It's understandable whether it's right or wrong. That's for the individuals to decide, but it's understandable because we have a lot of green space around here. Green space development is costly, obviously more costly than infill. Uh, But people are going to say, well, there's lots of other places you can build it, build it somewhere else. Don't build it, you know, next to my house. Uh, but again, with, with the just the general housing cost crisis, yeah, if we build, I don't know, if we build 300, 400, 500 more condos that are reasonably priced, that can take a lot of pressure off the problems we're having. And, uh, you know, we have a secondary problem that, again, I know I've harped on this in the past and people are tired of me blaming somebody, but we brought in five or 6,000 foreign students every year. They didn't have anywhere to house them. 
So what happens is investors come in, buy the lower end houses because you can flip them and turn them into five unit rentals, renting out rooms, making $3,000 a month where before that would have been, you know, a $200,000 house, you know, and it, it didn't generate an income. It would only cost you like 800 bucks a month to live there. So those got scooped up and they got scooped up by outside investors. And when you value a property from a residential standpoint and you value a property from a multi, an investment standpoint, it's two completely different valuations. You're just looking for a return on your investment. Whereas when you live there, you're just looking to you know, keep your expenses as low as possible. So you can take a house that would have been a $250,000 house, three bedroom bungalow somewhere and say, okay, that's worth 250 grand. But as an investment, if you can get, you know, two grand a month out of that. Well, now if you have to spend a thousand dollars a month, which would be a $300,000 mortgage, it's, it's no big deal. The math makes sense. So there's, there's a bunch of problems that uh, there's a lot of issues that have contributed to this problem locally, but I think they are salvageable. It's not going to be, the truth is builders right now are still building houses. They sold a year and a half ago, two years ago. We're not going to be able to build there's no builders in town that are going to be able to build another 500 houses in the next two years. It's just, it, it's impossible logistically. So it's going to be an ongoing problem. How the governments decide to deal with it. I don't know, but that, again, that's for people smarter than me. Turn your mic on, John. You're I know I, I saw it. You don't have to comment. It would have just been a nice gradual pause there. Right I saw your end. mouth moving and nothing is coming out. <laughs> but no one else can see it moving because you're I the one that was unmuted. Oh, this is, this is terrible. What a way. What a way to end the show. That's right, folks. We have reached the end. We took 10 weeks off and all that you missed <laughs> was the mega hospital, the bridge blockade, Amherstburg. And you can't afford houses anymore. And it, yeah, prices still suck. Um, and Prince Andrew, for love of God, changed the name of that school. And I went there and loved Prince Andrew, but not the FBI, the school. So <laughs> <laughs> just, just don't change it to Epstein public school. <laughs> well, there, just a there's, recommendation. There's, there's a perfect example of what would happen. Yeah. Well, folks, this has been fun. It's nice to get back into the regular format where we have lots of things that we want to discuss, but we are not able to do so. But hey, you know what? That's what next week is for. So on behalf of Rose City Politics, everyone, it is March the 16th, and we will be back. Our regular panel tonight included myself, John Lidke, Doug Sartori, and Don Merrifield Jr. Support us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Rose City Politics. We are in BizX Magazine, bizxmagazine.com, on all of your favorite podcasting and social media apps like share, subscribe. Um, and Rosie Politics is able to broadcast live on tape every time, thanks to the kind support of Lee Unit 625 Building Better Communities.